Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. You have to be careful with the word precedent, Hannah. It starts to turn. What's the word for that thing when you say it over and over and over again? It doesn't mean sense anymore. You're like precedent, precedent. Precedent, I don't precedent. know the word for that thing, but I know what you're talking about. But that's not why you got to be careful with the word precedent. No, no. You got to be careful with the word precedent because of the word precedence and presidents. Oh, President's Day. Dead presidents. Dead presidents. Mr. Speaker. Dead president. The, the president of the United States. <laughs> this is Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And I'm Nick Capodice. And today we are talking about judicial precedent. How the Supreme Court interprets the law and how that interpretation becomes an authority and guidebook for everyone else. And what happens when that precedent is overturned. Now, we decided to do this episode because of something that's happening right now in our Supreme Court. It's June 2022, and earlier this year, a draft opinion in a Supreme Court case about abortion access, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, was leaked to the public. Leaked to the public late yesterday suggests that by this summer, a majority of the justices will overturn Roe v. Wade. That opinion lays out a justification for overturning Roe v. Wade, the landmark case in 1973 that established the right to abortion. By the time you hear this episode, a final decision may have been made in this case. But no matter the final decision, this draft opinion marks an historic moment in Supreme Court precedent. In this episode, we're going to talk about how Supreme Court precedent has worked throughout history and why precedent is so important. We'll also talk about how the Supreme Court has treated the precedent established in Roe v. Wade in the years that followed. And we will have a special follow-up episode that looks at how precedent is treated in the Dobbs opinion. The doctrine of precedent refers to the norm of treating like cases alike. This is Nina Varsaba. She's a law professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She studies judicial precedent and is the author of the 2020 article, Precedent on Precedent. Take something like constitutional rights to life, liberty, and property, for example. Now, by itself, that's pretty abstract, right? So how do we know that this actually means we have a right to a fair and speedy trial or the right to equal education? Yeah, the right to marry someone regardless of their race or gender All of these things we've seen and talked about in landmark Supreme Court cases over the years. Right. These rights in our Constitution are given their meaning by the Supreme Court, who decides what the law actually means in practice. They establish a precedent, and that precedent is the foundation for everything that follows. And I'm just going to go ahead and put it out there right now. This episode 
is full of legal jargon, but it's so worth it. Here is your first legal term for today, stare decisis. Stare decisis is short for a longer Latin phrase that means stand by things decided and don't disturb settled points. Basically, stare decisis is the practice of using precedent. When you get a case about, say, freedom of speech, you look at how similar cases were decided and use that to inform the decision in the new case. Is this like referenced or alluded to anywhere in the Constitution? Because I don't think precedent or stare decisis is in there anywhere. So the Constitution doesn't explicitly say anything about precedent. But some commentators have argued that the doctrine of precedent is constitutionally required. Like a lot of things with the Constitution, it's up for interpretation. So some believe that Article 3 of the Constitution, which concerns the judicial power, implicitly requires stare decisis. And then some commentators have argued that following precedent is a requirement of constitutional due process. Basically, your constitutional right to experience the law fairly and consistently, no matter where you are. Due process might also require courts to protect reasonable expectations, so people form expectations based on how past cases were decided. And then if courts upset those expectations, decisions are unpredictable, then that would violate the right to due process. And that makes sense, right? Yeah. You are going to govern your life based on how rules have been set down in the past. Think of an open book test, for example. If a teacher has said, all tests in this class will be open book, and every test before the one you're about to take has been open book, you have the expectation that that next test is also going to be open book. And then let's say the day before the test, the teacher says, oh, no, sorry, this is not an open book test. That teacher has set an expectation and has now completely changed that expectation. Yeah, that sounds demonstrably unfair. Yeah, so once the Supreme Court sets a precedent, whether it's a new precedent on a new issue or or it's a precedent overruling previous cases, it affects how other courts in the U.S. will decide similar cases and in turn, how people will structure their lives and conduct themselves. So all the other courts in the U.S., both state and federal, are strictly bound by the U.S. Supreme Court's cases on matters of federal law. This is one way that precedent works, and it's called vertical stare decisis. And it's just what it sounds like. Decisions at the top flow downward. An example is the case of Obergefell v. Hodges, decided in 2015. In that case, the Supreme Court determined that there's a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. And in practical terms, this means that no government may create laws that ban or limit same-sex marriage. Profound. The five to four vote in many ways reflecting the huge societal shift of the last 20 years. So that decision, of course, had and continues to have a significant impact on many people's lives. So in practical terms, if a state now enacts a law trying to prohibit or restrict same-sex marriage, that law would be invalid. But we've read a lot of Supreme Court decisions over the years, and they can be dozens of pages long. And you've often got multiple opinions concurring and dissenting. How do you figure out which part of the decision is the precedent? If there is a majority opinion, then the standard view is that whatever is binding in the precedent is contained in that majority opinion. Now, most cases are decided by a simple majority where the justices agree both on the question being asked and how the law applies to it. The interpretation in that simple majority becomes the precedent. 
So Obergefell v. Hodges is one example of this. A 5-4 majority of justices agreed that people have a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. And therefore, in the case before them and in all other cases like it, a state could not pass laws that banned same-sex marriage. Yeah, but Nina just said, if there's a simple majority. Some cases don't have a majority opinion at all. These are known as plural decisions. For example, four justices say a law and any law like it is in violation of the Constitution. Another four justices say a law is not in violation of the Constitution. And one justice has a concurring opinion. For example, I agree that this law is in violation of the Constitution, but just this one law, not all other laws like it. In some plural decisions, which part of the opinion is precedent is less clear. And I should say, even justices on the Supreme Court disagree on how precedent should work in plural decisions. Sometimes this means that lower courts end up disagreeing on how to interpret the decision, creating circuit court splits. And the case gets punted back up to the Supreme Court. But in an ideal situation, the Supreme Court has issued a clear decision, and that decision becomes the precedent? Yes. And vertical stare decisis means that when similar cases come up, the lower courts look to that decision and say, hey, this is what the Supreme Court said. All right. This episode is happening at a time when the Supreme Court seems poised to overturn one of its own decades old precedents. There's no court higher than the Supreme Court. So obviously vertical stare decisis doesn't work there. Right. So the way the Supreme Court treats its own precedent is horizontal stare decisis. So there's no court that creates decisions that the Supreme Court would be strictly bound by. But it does recognize the presidential force of its own decisions. Now that feels a little more wobbly. However, from what I remember throughout history, the Supreme Court usually takes its own precedent pretty seriously. Nearly every Supreme Court case you read about is referring back to previous decisions as a guideline. So questioning themselves all the time would not only be counterintuitive, but also somewhat undermining. Yeah, there have been over 25,000 Supreme Court decisions in the history of our Supreme Court, and only a few dozen of those precedents have been overturned. So courts often modify precedent, which means that they're making some adjustment to a past decision or they're updating the doctrine without completely discarding that previous doctrine. The Supreme Court typically, and for good reason, has been wary of overturning precedent. So the doctrine of precedent serves several important purposes. For example, it helps to maintain the credibility of perceived legitimacy of the court. And the idea is that if the court adheres to previous decisions, even when the composition of the court has changed, then the court acts as, and is seen to act as a law applying institution rather than a political or ideological one whose opinion vacillates with the politics or personal morality of the justices. Well, that makes sense. If you base all of your power and credibility on doing one thing really well, you don't really want to be in the habit of saying, well, sometimes I did this well, but this other time I was actually completely wrong. Yeah, exactly. So the court's legitimacy might be degraded um, by a drastic shift in the doctrine concerning fundamental rights. And that might mean that its decisions aren't entitled to as much respect. And then another value underlying stare decisis is fairness and equality. So the idea is that it's unfair for similarly situated people to be treated differently under the law over time. 
This gets us back to due process. If the law is constantly up for question, then where you are in space and time can make a big difference in how the law is applied to you. Okay, so overturning precedent is something that is done rarely and with good reason. So why would the Supreme Court ever do it? We'll get to that after a quick break. But before the break, Hannah and I would like to remind you that we at Civics 101 make a bi-weekly, that's once every two weeks, newsletter. It's fun. It's free. It's kind of goofy. And you can subscribe at our website, civics101podcast.org. Talk about not agreeing on the definition of a term, bi-weekly and bi-monthly. Both mean two different things. Yeah, we've had this, uh, it we've had this argument in like five episodes. It just up a episodes. wall. The newsletter comes out bi-monthly. Oh, God. Anyways, you're going to like it. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, we are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service, where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business, and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead. With Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. So there is a precedent for overturning precedent. Over the centuries, the tens of thousands of cases, the Supreme Court has developed a method for reevaluating its own reasoning. If the court is going to take the step to undo a decision it's already made, especially one that has informed dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of cases across the country, it has to make a pretty good argument for doing so. There are a few factors that the court uses when evaluating precedent. This is Nina Varsava. One, whether the past decision has proven unworkable, so basically that it's impractical, infeasible to implement or follow. And then two, the degree to and way in which people in society have relied on the decision. Three, whether subsequent changes in law have made the decision a doctrinal outlier so that it just doesn't really fit with other legal doctrines. And four, whether facts or our understanding of them have changed such that the holding of the precedent isn't applicable anymore or isn't anymore justifiable based on what we now know or understand the relevant facts to be. Let's break that down. Is the law impractical or unfeasible? For example, the Supreme Court once had a decision that said that sometimes the federal minimum wage applied to state employees, but not always. This sounds really complicated. It was so complicated, in fact, that lower courts couldn't figure out how and when states had to follow the minimum wage requirement or not. And a few years later, the Supreme Court reevaluated and decided, yeah, this is not workable. Nina also mentioned that the court considers how people in society have relied on a precedent. What did she mean by that? This is known as a reliance interest. So they ask, to what extent did people rely on the previous decision 
or did society rely on it in order to plan their lives? And this kind of interest is also one of the main purposes of the whole doctrine of stare decisis. So protecting people's expectations, making the law predictable. So if the court is considering whether a precedent should be overturned, it should also account for how overturning that precedent may impact people's lives. Right. And finally, have facts changed or was there an error in reasoning? I mean, let's take the infamous precedent set by Dred Scott v. Sanford. In that decision, the Supreme Court said that African-Americans, whether they were free or enslaved, were not citizens of the United States. The decision was highly controversial at the time, and in some ways it helped to galvanize a political movement that eventually led to the Civil War and the abolishment of slavery. Now, later on, the 13th and 14th Amendments made the precedent obsolete. It no longer fit with the ideology of the country as a whole. And beyond that, the Supreme Court acknowledged that the reasoning behind that decision was so wrong as to be anti-canon, anti-precedent. Now, Nina said that the Supreme Court doesn't often overturn precedent completely, but it modifies it. And it just so happens that Roe v. Wade is a perfect example of this. A few decades after Roe v. Wade, the precedent it established was taken up by the Supreme Court, reconsidered and modified. And if people want to do a deep dive into Roe v. Wade, we did a whole episode on it that we just re-released a couple weeks ago. You can find it in our show feed. But real quick, Hannah, can you remind us all what precedent was established in Roe v. Wade? Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Roe v. Wade said that in certain circumstances, someone's ability to get an abortion is inherent to their right to life, liberty, and property. And the ability to make that decision is inherent in their right to privacy, which had also been located in the Constitution. And the decision said that those circumstances were determined by viability. Basically, how far along a pregnancy was determined by the trimester system. In the first trimester, says Roe, it's the patient in consultation with her doctor who makes a decision whether or not to carry a pregnancy to term. This is Rachel Rabouche. In the second trimester, the state's interest becomes bigger. She's a professor of law at Temple University, where she focuses on reproductive health, including prenatal genetic testing, surrogacy and abortion law. There are certain restrictions that the uh, state can impose. And by the third trimester, you know, past viability, really, then the state can do a lot to restrict choice. What's interesting about Roe is that the court justified this precedent that abortion was part of someone's 14th Amendment rights by referring to other 14th Amendment cases. Earlier in the 20th century, the court had held that the 14th Amendment due process clause protects the rights of parents to dictate the education of their children. And why? Because the rights of parents to decide fundamental issues dictating the, the how they raise children you know, is older than the Bill of Rights. The same with marriage. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say marriage, but as part of this um, life, liberty, and property part of your liberty is that the state cannot restrict your right to marry without a really, really good reason. They can't do it based on race and loving. Loving, as in Loving v. Virginia, which said that a state couldn't prohibit interracial marriage, which we've also done an episode about. They can't do it because you're an inmate. They can't do it because you failed to pay child support. 
And not only was Roe informed by other 14th Amendment cases more broadly, it was also informed by 14th Amendment cases that had to do with reproductive health. Ten years before Roe was decided, the court had also decided a couple of cases that determined that the same set of values under the 14th Amendment protected the right to contraceptives. So first, it was striking down a Connecticut law that um, restricted the way in which married people could use contraceptives or obtain contraceptives. And then in the next case, striking down a Massachusetts law that forbade unmarried people from using contraceptives. So those are some examples of the types of rights that the court had held that the 14th Amendment protected, rights that are important to intimacy and uh, relationships, family, procreation, reproduction. The precedent in Roe v. Wade has been held up to scrutiny, and it has been modified. For example, in a case from 1992 called Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Pennsylvania passed a new law that restricted abortion by creating additional requirements that someone had to meet to access an abortion, like a waiting period, spousal notice, parental consent for minors. The Supreme Court took up the case to figure out if the precedent in Roe v. Wade was still workable. The court could have completely overturned Roe v. Wade, but it didn't. David Souter and Anthony Kennedy wrote... After considering the fundamental constitutional questions resolved by Roe, we are led to conclude this. The essential holding of Roe v. Wade should be retained and once again affirmed. The court surprised some then. It did not overturn Roe. What it did is it said, we announce a new test, essentially, that states have to pass if abortion restrictions are going to stand. We chuck the trimester system That's not workable moving forward. Viability is changing. Science is changing. Technology is changing. Change, change, change. Um, And instead, what we're going to do as a court is we're going to ask, does the state restriction impose an undue burden on the right to abortion? That, you know, opened the door for a lot of restrictions, a lot, a lot, a lot of restrictions in that same case. The Supreme Court upheld every Pennsylvania restriction except for the requirement that a woman notify her spouse before she have an abortion. That they upheld informed consent and reporting requirements and a waiting period and you name it. However, the Supreme Court still felt that the core of Roe v. Wade, that access to abortion was a protected right, should still stand. So in Casey, the court reasoned that people were relying on Roe and that the reliance was important and widespread, a a kind of societal reliance. So the court went so far as to tweak the precedent of the landmark case of Roe v. Wade, but stayed in line with the core constitutional question that Roe answered. Access to abortion is federally protected and based on precedent that came before which is important not just to constitutional interpretation, but to the authority of the Supreme Court itself. The court is the final arbiter of the Constitution. The court tells us what the Constitution actually says. To overrule one of those interpretations, a seminal, landmark interpretation no less, is to say that the court was very wrong about something very significant. And in this case, it is to say that they were wrong not so very long ago. The court is hesitant to do such a thing, and with good reason. So precedent is really twofold, isn't it? 
It's about establishing a through line of meaning in the Constitution, and it's about affirming that the court was correct the first, second, and third time they established that meaning. Yes, and 20 years after Roe and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the court maintained that core precedent. That precedent based on precedent. But 50 years later? Politico reports said that shortly after the court heard oral arguments in December about a Mississippi law banning abortion after 15 weeks, five Republican-nominated justices voted to overturn Roe. That would be a seismic shift, both legally and politically. 26 states are certain or likely to outlaw... Yeah, we are going to have to figure out what that actually means for precedent. Yeah, we sure are. Based on the precedent set in this very episode. That's in a special bonus episode of Civics 101. Today's episode was produced by Christina Phillips with help from Hannah McCarthy and Mina Capodice. Our staff includes Jackie Fulton and Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Wax Lyricist, Holizna, Chris Zabriskie, Des Moran, Scan Globe, New Teal Records, and Rocky Marciano. If you like Civics 101 and you get something out of it and are in the position to put something back in, please consider donating to our show. We're a nonprofit, so people like you are literally the only way we can exist. Thanks. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR. New Hampshire Public Radio. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the bacon cheese slider, 1921 bacon cheese slider, or chicken bacon ranch slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 bacon bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.